We are going to energize the country. We need to wake up and smell the coffee. The independence case is a powerful one. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Constantine Kizin, the co-host of Trigonometry and the author of a new book, which we will be discussing today, An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West. Welcome to the podcast, Constantine. Thanks for having me, Will. I appreciate it. It's great to have you on. Now, the first question I'd like to ask is one that um, you answer in the book to a certain extent, but I think it's worth for the listeners uh, to, for me to ask the question. What made you decide to write this particular book at the moment? What made me decide to write the book is simultaneously the great affection I have for the society that I happen to now live in. Uh, here in the UK, uh, and the fact that I'm concerned about the direction of travel of this country and also the, the Anglosphere more generally. If the book had been more accurately titled, it would have been called An Immigrant's Love Letter to the Anglosphere, because I think that's where a lot of the concerns lie, and it's distinct from much of the rest of Western civilization. Uh, but, you know, for the purposes of marketing and succinctness, it's called An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West. Um, I'm concerned about the direction of the West. I'm concerned about uh, our own attitude to ourselves, first and foremost, because I see that as the thing that will make us vulnerable to foreign threats, uh, of which we are now becoming increasingly aware in the last few months. We've seen what Russia is doing in Ukraine, and I see that as a reflection of the fact that the foreign actors are seeing the West as weak and divided and distracted by some of the things that I'm sure we'll talk about. And they are using that as an opportunity uh, to probe and to see how strong the West's reaction is going to be. So as someone who's been concerned about this for some time and has been predicting some of this for some time, uh, I wanted to write a book that uh, sh shared with people, particularly people who are born in the West and perhaps have never lived outside of the West, just how unique and wonderful it is to be here. Uh, it is very unusual to enjoy all the benefits of Western society as we do. Uh, and I think far too few of us here in the West uh, understand that and appreciate just how lucky we are. Mm -hmm. um, and you mentioned Russia there, and of course, a, a great part of the, the book, a, a comparative part of the book, is you comparing your upbringing and, and, your, and your family's uh, history and, and lives under the Soviet Union in Russia. In terms of taking that personal perspective, do you think it was important for you to make sure that the book had more impact by relying on the things that had happened to you and to your family to make that point between the differences between um, life in the Soviet Union and, and life in the Western world? Definitely, uh, not only because I think people are interested in personal stories and I, I always enjoy to, to see the historical context of certain things. I think people appreciate that. And of course, it's a world into which few people in the West really have a strong insight, um, even if they're well read. It's not necessarily something that people in the West are particularly aware of. Uh, but I also feel that, you know, there's a dual uh, theme there as well, Will, which is that some of the changes that I'm concerned about in Western society seem to be taking us in that direction, in the direction of the things that I saw in my early childhood and particularly in the experiences of my family where, uh, you know, if you said the wrong thing, you would be punished for it. Uh, wrong thing was, was strictly, uh, you know, smacked down if you engaged in it. Uh, you were supposed to keep your thoughts quiet. Uh, you know, I talk about the Soviet origins of political correctness in the book. And there are many, many other things that we're now seeing in the West that 
trouble me precisely because I've seen them before. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think in, in terms of the um, comparison that some people might say that it's easy to um, to praise the West by comparing it with a, obviously a, a dictatorial regime? Do, do you think that that's something that you worry about in terms of criticism that some people may say, oh, well, it's easy to praise the rest uh, the West if you're using such an extreme counter example? Mm. I suppose my question to those people would be, well, what are they comparing the West to when mm. they say the West is this terrible racist hellhole in which we're all walking around in fear of being attacked and, and uh, mocked and, and whatever for our minority status or our sex or our sexuality, uh, which other places in the world today or in the history of the world would they prefer to compare us to? This is one of the points that made me really keen to write the book is we seem to be comparing ourselves to some kind of imagined utopia uh, and any failure to adhere to, to, that, to that standard is automatically uh, considered to be a, a complete and total failure of the West to live up to its ideals. Ideals are important, but I think we also got to be realistic. We are as close to living up to our ideals as any people in the history of the world. And it's them that we should be comparing ourselves to. Uh, you know, the, there are only fi five or six great civilizations in the world. The primary ones that we would concern ourselves with here would be Western Europe, uh, Russia, and China, perhaps India as well. But you know, by comparison to all of them, we are doing exceptionally well. And it strikes me as very, it's very odd that we would compare ourselves to anything other than the other people in the world. Mm. Otherwise, who are we supposed to be comparing ourselves with? Yeah, absolutely. Do, do you it sort of makes my point, really, sorry yeah. to interrupt, Will, no, which no, is that course. every other civilization in the world is, is one which you would consider extreme by comparison. That is mm. the very mark of how successful we are at living up to, to our objectives, whether that's freedom of speech, freedom of expression, and uh, democracy, the, the involvement of ordinary people in, in the life of their society, and on all of these metrics, safety from violence, safety from discrimination, uh, on all of these metrics, we're doing extraordinarily well compared to everybody else who's ever lived. So mm -hmm. by that, that, to me, that seems a reasonable standard by which we should analyze our own failure or success on those metrics. Yeah. Do you think then that um, the, the way that uh, people, particularly from uh, the left and, and, and the progressive wing of politics may react to that is they may say that well is this merely a means of saying oh well we can't have um greater progress I mean, we can't improve things because um you know you, you you're saying that obviously we have a, a greater lifestyles and greater freedoms than other parts of the world some might argue that that is a sort of a an attempt to perhaps snuffle progress as such i mean i mean how would you respond to that yeah, I'm, I'm sure some people would argue that if they haven't read the book, but as someone who has read the book, you know that I identify a number of areas where uh, I do think actually we're stuck in, in Western society and we need to address those issues uh, because otherwise we will continue to have some of the problems that we have. I am someone that, uh, you know, I'm not partisan in my politics. I'm interested in pragmatic solutions. I, I don't think you get to pragmatic solutions by constantly beating yourself up about how you're not perfect. I also don't think you get to pragmatic solutions by pretending everything is 
flawless and there was nothing to improve you, you know as you know i talk a lot about in the book about the housing crisis and mm. economic inequality and these are really important issues that i would hope people on the left would be allied with me about uh, these are issues that the left used to care about until about three seconds ago uh when suddenly identity politics came to the fore so uh you know i i agree with certain aspects of progressive thinking i agree with certain aspects of conservative thinking i'm interested in in finding a path forward for having a better, healthier, more integrated and cohesive society. And, uh, you know, the housing crisis in this country, in the UK, mm. is a massive barrier to that, uh, probably one of the biggest things that we've got to solve as a society. So rather than looking at it through a party politics or a partisan point of view, uh, I'm sure some people who want to dismiss the book or want to dismiss my arguments will make that that mm. those sort of comparisons but I, I think it's unfortunate that our political conversations are all about you know this is this person is supposed to be right-wing therefore we have to reject everything he says or vice versa frankly I really really think it's time for moderates to step forward moderates like me mm -hmm. and to say what can we take from both sides that is going to be useful and move forward in that way on the um the framing of identity politics which is obviously something you discuss in the book mm -hmm. how important do you think identity is to individual people and how much of an influence do you think leaving aside the sort of the categorization of identity politics but actual people's identity is to why people vote for particular political parties or particular movements I think it really depends on where you're talking about. I think it's, it certainly would be fair to say that, for example, here I sit in East London in Tower Hamlets. It seems to me that identity, uh, whether that's religious or ethnic, is very important to the people who live here in terms of electing the mayor of Tower Hamlets or their local MPs, uh, because there's a very cohesive ethnic minority community here that, that wants its interests to be represented. I would also say equally that, for example, I don't think that uh, you know, white people in Britain vote as one block. We, we know that isn't true, right? So it's, it's very context specific. Um, I am concerned though, and I think you're right to bring it up, that identity politics has made individual or group identity particularly uh, such an important issue in people's minds and we're now all encouraged to think of ourselves as men or women or black or white or immigrants or native born people or whatever it is uh, to me that seems to be the very antithesis of the western enlightenment project which said that first and foremost you are valuable and worthy by virtue of the fact that you are a human individual being uh, and it strikes me that previous experiments with group identity politics along ethnic and religious lines haven't ended particularly well, uh, to, to use a, a, an understatement. They, they tend to end very badly. Uh, so it, it seems to me that we should avoid that sort of uh, change in our society as much as we can. And encouraging people to think of themselves as their race or their sex or their sexuality first and as members of our society second or as British or American or whatever it is, that to me is a, is a very dangerous thing that we're doing. And I'm deeply concerned as to where that leads because uh, identity politics for minorities is somewhat understandable. People who feel that, you know, they are a small group of a bigger society and they, they may not be fully included in that society if they don't band together. Uh, you know, I understand that. I wish that more immigrants would, would get past that and find ways of integrating themselves fully where they don't think of themselves through the lens of their skin color and religion and so on. Um, 
but I also worry about the the consequence of that that down the line because if if you've got a situation where everybody thinks of themselves as their group identity first, well, you're going to end up with the majority or the more powerful groups also being tempted and drawn into this way of thinking. And the more that those groups feel that they are, you know, discriminated against or treated in a different way to other groups, the more that is likely to happen. And I have experiences which I've detailed in the book where I've seen that happen in this country where, you know, a TV presenter saying to me, I'm really glad we didn't have any white people involved in this panel discussion that you've just done. Um, you know, I, I, that concerns me because the more that that, that happens, the more you're going to see uh, the majority group also feel like they have to band together. And as I say, I don't think that's a recipe for good things. Mm -hmm. How do you think identity and um, patriotism are intertwined? Because, of course, patriotism is something um, that is important for uh, certain people, both in Britain and America and, and, and around the world. But of course, that is, again, tied up with identity. I mean, do you think you can sort of separate the two at all in terms of the, the way people think of themselves being perhaps patriotic towards a particular country that they live in, either they've been born there or, or they've migrated, they've immigrated um, there? Or, or, or do you think it is sort of welded together and, and there's no way to view patriotism as in any way separate from some of the other um, identity politics that we've discussed? Uh, I think those things are completely disconnected, if I'm honest with you. I think uh, certainly the, the, the identity of British or American has always seemed to me uh, to be quite carefully crafted identities that are designed to service a multi-ethnic society like the ones that we have. I, for example, am a first-generation dark-skinned Russian immigrant, but I couldn't be more proud uh, and more grateful to live in Britain. And I'm certainly, I'd consider myself patriotic in terms of being British. Uh, that to me is a very healthy way of looking at things because of course, you, you know, human beings evolved to be tribal. We're never going to get away mm. from the desire to be part of some grouping. And my concern with identity politics isn't that it's tribal in and of itself. I don't think you're ever gonna get rid of that from human beings. My concern is the type of identity we're now encouraging and seeking to have. Uh, it is not a collective uniting identity. It is a set of divisive identities in which we're all encouraged to navel gaze more and more, drill down further and further. And you now see people whose identity is their mental health situation. You know, mm. uh, uh, do they have ADHD or are they bipolar or whatever? That is becoming an identity. I think that's not a particularly healthy way to, to run a society. Uh, I think the nation state, is a great way of doing that. And if we all say, you know, I'm black and you're brown and you're white and you're male and you're female and you're transgender and whatever, it uh, doesn't matter what we are is British. It doesn't matter if you're an African-American or Jamaican-American or an Irish-American. The important word in that phrase is American. And those individual flavors, they certainly make society more interesting and more varied and we can meet and learn from each other's uh, cultures. But the fundamental central piece to who we are is that we all buy in to the British or American way of being. We all support our country. Uh, I'm not saying this is a prescriptive thing. You know, mm -hmm. of course, people are going to question what their politicians are doing. You know, I'm deeply skeptical about some of the people running this country at the moment, but I don't think that should detract from the fact that we live in one of the best societies in the world. And if we want it to continue to be one of the best societies in the world, we do have to remember the good 
and not throw away the baby with the bathwater when we do discuss legitimate criticisms of our present and our past. Mm -hmm. in, in, I'd just like to um, focus, um, you, you mentioned there about some people making identities related to uh, mental health conditions, mm. ADHD, bipolar, etc. Do you think that there has to be um, uh, perhaps a, a, a balance, though, in that people who do have those particular conditions should be able to feel free to talk about them and, and, and not seeing, you know, that these particular conditions are in some way uh, ones that they should not be able to talk about. Do, do you think there's a sort of a, a bit of a tension there between? Yeah, I, I well, I don't think there is. And I think it's, I think you're sort of uh, ass covering a little bit on my behalf with that question, because <laughs> I didn't suggest anything of the kind. I'm not talking about whether people should be free to talk about having ADHD or being bipolar or anything of the kind. You know, I have fat people in my own family who suffer very, various things or live with various conditions, some of them which make them better at certain things and worse than others and whatever. I am all for uh, people having every opportunity to be themselves fully, to get support if they're struggling with certain things. Uh, but I don't think anyone should ever make that their identity. If you speak to people who are physically disabled, for example, very few of them would actually like to be treated as disabled. Most of them would quite like to be treated as just people and their disability is something they may need extra support with or a bit of empathy or understanding or a bit of help or a bit of government support, whatever that is. But I think we'd all like to be treated as people first, not as a condition that we have. Um, you know, so I, I think uh, these things just aren't connected in my mind, Will. I think mm. uh, people can be given every opportunity to be themselves, but that does not mean that they have to view the world and view other people through the lens of their particular niche identity. That's what I'm in encouraging mm -hmm. us to think about is we are in this country British. That means that comes with certain cultural things that we all do or subscribe to and, and also other things that we don't do and, and don't subscribe to. And we should be more comfortable than we have been in recent years to articulate that vision and to suggest that we all need to follow it. Uh, otherwise, well, we're not going to have a society. Mm -hmm. I'd like to just touch now upon history, because this is an important part of the book, not just talking about um, British history, but also history in, in the Soviet Union and world history mm. as well. In terms of the way that history is presented now and discussed now, what are your thoughts about whether we are discussing history in the best possible way? Or do you think that the way that we look at history is in some ways perhaps not being uh, fully embracing what happened in the past and sort of not judging the past as the past, but trying to judge it through particular lenses, whether that be uh, a lens of, you know, certain things shouldn't be taught or shouldn't be discussed, or whether that be a lens of we have to make up for and we have to improve upon the mistakes of our ancestors, as some people might word it. Yeah, I think the, the issue we have with history, and certainly in the West, is that we, uh, it's quite funny because we are in a way very Western centric in the way that we teach history. Uh, and the result of that is actually that we beat ourselves up more for the things that our ancestors did in the West than we ought to. Uh, but it comes from a, a sort of Western exceptionalist mindset when it comes to teaching history, because if you, for example, take the most contentious issue that I talk about in the book, which is slavery. Uh, slavery is, when, when I say the word slavery, 99% of the people listening to this think of the transatlantic slave trade, uh, which is a portion of world history when it comes to 
to slavery, but is deprived entirely of the context, which is that every other major society in history was doing the same thing at the same time. Uh, and slavery only really ended in, in, in the, the sort of advanced world, thanks to the Western colonial powers doing everything they could to end it. Uh, but if you don't know that, if you're not aware of what was happening to my ancestors in Russia, uh, if you're not aware that slavery had existed in Africa for centuries before the, the colonial Western powers came there, if you're not aware of the fact that the trans-Saharan slave trade, which was mostly run by Arab slave traders, took more Africans out of Africa than the transatlantic slave trade, and the death rate was higher, if you're not aware of any of this, uh, then it's very easy to believe that your own unique history is somehow uniquely evil and bad and terrible. Whereas my argument is, we are human beings. Our history, all, all our history is uniquely evil and terrible. And, and uh, you're not going to get away from that, whether you are British or American or Russian or Chinese. Uh, we all have these dark uh, periods in our past where we all engaged in certain practices, which were considered sort of necessary evils at the time by almost everybody. Uh, and we should look to the societies that managed to outlaw and end slavery uh, with a certain amount of actually respect rather than considering them to be uniquely evil for having engaged it in the first place. Mm -hmm. in, in, in terms of that, in terms of the sort of respect that uh, perhaps, as, as you argue, we should feel towards uh, those societies that were able to outlaw it, do you think that there also has to be a sort of a, a particular um, contextualization of that in terms of the way that the British regarded slavery as becoming an ineffective um, system? And for uh, many of those who uh, agreed with ending slavery, it was not out of the, the goodness of their heart, but from uh, an, an economic standpoint, which perhaps complicates the, the picture of the way that we, we judge, um, you know, it is an accomplishment as such. I think the motivation is secondary to my mind. Uh, I, I don't, I wasn't suggesting that the, our societies ended slavery because they suddenly decided that we're going to be all about human rights and mm. wonderful and brilliant. Uh, I'm just talking about which societies did it first, which societies spent money to make other societies end it, which societies have a rock solid commitment to human rights, unlike almost every other society in the world. I think we should judge ourselves. Uh, in our history through that lens. And of course, the other thing I would say is uh, you are not responsible for the actions of your ancestors and I'm not responsible for the actions of mine. Uh, so as a historical matter, uh, it should be something that we are able to discuss somewhat dispassionately. Uh, that does not mean, by the way, that we cannot make sure, uh, as I argue in the book, that uh, if there are particular groups or people who are still suffering the effects of their past treatment, that they're not... Uh, encouraged not as groups that have been oppressed or disadvantaged but just in general as groups that are currently not doing well we should be looking at those fellow citizens of ours and saying how can we help people in this particular geographic area because what you often find is many of the problems that people think are to do with race or immigrant status or whatever they're actually more nuanced than that they're about economic deprivation they're about classism and and things like that and so uh, my suggestion is that where there are people in our society who, who are, are struggling, we should be looking at that and, and uh, as, as a people, as individuals, as also as government and looking to help people in that way. But I think the focus on it as a race or, or ethnicity issue is often unhelpful. And we see that in the UK where you know, black people from Africa, for example, are doing exceptionally well, much, much better than white people in terms of education, economic outcomes, et cetera. Whereas there are problems in Caribbean 
descended communities in this country due to the different histories. Um, so uh, you, when you look at that uh, in that way, I think that's how you get to the pragmatic solutions that we were talking about earlier. When, whereas when we obsess endlessly about race, as if that is the defining feature of everything, that's when you actually get further and further away from some of the things that are going to be helping the people on the ground, which is what I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'd just like to um, turn to, in, in regards to history, the issue of obviously um, removing certain statues and, and, and monuments of particular individuals, which is something that we have um, seen, uh, especially in the past few years. I mean, in terms of the way that people go about that and the way that people think about that, do you think that there is something to be said for um, these are statues that, you know, perhaps to individuals that aren't really recognised, that aren't really celebrated? Uh, perhaps it would be, given the actions of these past people, appropriate to remove them in an orderly manner and replace them with perhaps something that better reflects the history of the area? Or do you think that it is important that we leave these particular landmarks where they are as a kind of record of the way that areas have changed from when the statues were erected to the present day? Yeah, my own view on that is actually very weakly held. I'm not really too bothered about the statues either way. What I am deeply concerned about is that uh, I'm a Democrat. I believe in democracy. And so in my view, the way to remove statues that people find offensive is to find the democratic process by which that decision can be made. For example, in Bristol, where I actually grew up and went to school after moving from Russia, uh, I know that the statues which were later torn down had actually been voted to remain by the people of Bristol. Uh, and so to me, the concern is uh, not so much about the particular policy. I'm not too bothered about the statue, the, the Colston statue being there or not being there. Uh, but I am worried about a situation where uh, mobs of people that nobody elected are allowed to go around and tear down property uh, against the wishes of their fellow citizens. So it's the same as my attitude to something like immigration. I have my own views on what the immigration policy of this country should be. But the big concern I have about the current situation is not so much that it does not align with my particular views. The big concern I have with the current situation is people vote on the understanding that they're going to get a certain immigration policy and they, they then don't get it. Uh, and that is a bigger concern to me than the actually underlying issue. So it's the same with the statues, not too bothered about the statue being up or down, very, very concerned about allowing people to unilaterally make these decisions when the democratic wishes of the local population don't reflect that. Mm -hmm. Now, I'd like to turn to um, freedom of speech, which is, of course, another um, major issue that you touch upon in the book. But uh, firstly, I'd like to um, ask a question about it in relation to being a comedian, because obviously there is a, a, a great deal of debate, not just outside the community of comedians, but also inside about the degree to which certain matters can be joked about or, or, or used as comedy material. Do you think that it is up to ultimately the individual comedian to make a judgment as to whether a particular audience would be receptive to certain jokes? Or do you think that it's always gonna be a case that certain acts will perhaps be more popular with certain audiences and that perhaps they um, should shy away from maybe performing in certain spaces where they might not get the reaction to their jokes that they hope to. 
Comedy is, is very self-selecting. Uh, as a comedian, when you go on stage and you do a joke, you immediately know what the audience as a collective feel or think about the joke. Uh, so one of the ways that comedians find out what is and isn't acceptable is by saying a joke out loud and seeing what the reaction is. And the problem we have is if, if every time you say a joke that some people consider offensive, you are attacked or punished or your career is somehow uh, attacked or destroyed or denigrated as a result, then what you're doing is you're essentially preventing people from being creative on stage. You're, you're preventing them from going past the line and the audience going, <gasps> which they often do. And then you go, okay, well, maybe I need to reword that joke or maybe I need to have a follow-up joke which explains the intent of this joke and and that's often how really good bits of material are built where you cross a line you realize that and then you build in other things to explain what you meant or where you're coming from or you're using that tension uh, by diffusing it later by explaining that actually you didn't mean it in that way or, or whatever it is and that's my concern with where comedy is getting to is uh, it's not so much that I'm interested in people being able to do the racist jokes that they want. There's very, very few comedians who would even think of that uh, mm. because that's not what a modern British comedy audience is interested in. Mm. So this notion that you've got all these massively racist comedians running around doing offensive jokes about minorities, it's just not true. Uh, it, I was on the comedy circuit for many years. I know most of the comedians in this country. I've gigged with most of them. I've yeah. never really heard somebody uh, who was doing something of that kind. And as I say, whenever a comedian discovers that the material they're doing is really not working and people are, are genuinely upset by it, they're not going to continue doing that material. Um, and if they do, they're not going to be able to work because at the end of the day, the comedy clubs and the comedy promoters want to book people who make audiences laugh and who are enjoyable. Um, another thing, of course, is you've got to remember one of the things that concerns me very deeply is we, we've lost in the comedy context, the ability to understand irony and sarcasm. Everything is now interpreted as literal. Whereas, of course, a huge part of humor is pretending to say things that you don't mean. And that has always been a huge part of comedy. We've now got to a position where uh, if you said something and you didn't mean it, you're not given the benefit of the doubt that it was irony or sarcasm. It's immediately assumed that you meant it literally and it wasn't a joke at all. In fact, what you were doing is advocating for some kind of policy position. Um, so that's another of the concerns that I have with the comedy landscape, and there is more. We could go on and on. Yeah, no, we certainly could. Um, in, in terms, just thinking of the, the, the wider issue of freedom of speech, what I found particularly interesting in the book is that you don't discuss freedom of speech as perhaps some people might as a means to say, oh, these are the right opinions or these are the wrong opinions. You discuss it uh, as a means of people should have an open forum, people should be able to say, you know, and have, have discussions and say what they want. Why do you think that in certain sections of society there is perhaps a bit of a backlash against that, that there is a feeling that there are certain topics which, if you discuss them in any particular way, um, if, you will, if you argue about them in a particular way, you will, you know, sort of um, not be able to go on further and talk about other things. What, what, what do you think it is that drives the need for certain topics to not be discussed in the same way that others would be? It's because the ideas are shit and they can't win without shutting down people they disagree with. It's as simple as that. 
The reason that all these people come up with these arguments that freedom of speech is about anyone who says they want to be free to speak is automatically a bigot and whatever is because they, they don't have a leg to stand on in terms of their arguments. I've experienced this many a time going on Good Morning Britain or whatever other uh, conversation show in, in the UK on television and radio. The, the people who advocate for this point of view do so because they're not able to engage in a genuine conversation about the issues that we're talking about. And so the moment we have a conversation about something like uh, the issues that we've talked about already, race or immigration or whatever, uh, they're not able to have a genuine discussion about it. And so they end up screaming racist and calling people names and whatever, because they've worked out that this is quite a powerful tool in a modern Western society where we, we value empathy a lot. And so if I can claim, you know, as a first generation immigrant with dark skin, I think this, a lot of people will be persuaded by that. Um, and uh, that is a tool that they use to win uh, the debate if they like. But it's not really winning. What you're doing is you're shutting other people down and you're kind of proving them right. Uh, and this is what they don't seem to realize. Uh, but I do think it genuinely comes from a desire to, to shut down people who have a better argument. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there are, um, in the way that we discuss things and the way that we have perhaps programming, do you think that there is any way in which freedom of speech can be felt to be had while also still having limits? So, for example, in the UK, we have the watershed, in which certain programming um, that is not suitable for children is broadcast after the watershed and programming that is suitable for them is broadcast beforehand. Do you, do you think that that's uh, an acceptable compromise in um, having a, a society that embraces a a, a great degree of freedom of speech. Well, remember, everything depends on the context, right? So the watershed comes from a time where essentially the government or the BBC were broadcasting content into your living room with no control over who watches that content, essentially, mm -hmm. right? If you turn on your TV at nine uh, and you stick it on and there's a bunch of swearing on, well, you might have kids running around that you don't particularly want to be consuming that content. Mm -hmm. Whereas in a comedy club or on a podcast like this, you know what you're signing up for. You are the one that chooses to click on that thing. Mm -hmm. You are the one that chooses to buy a ticket to a comedy show. And so the issue of free speech in that sense is very contextually different depending on, on the medium mm -hmm. that you're talking about. Of, of course, individual TV channels and whatever are free to set their rules. My concern is not so much with profanity, however, which is what you're talking about mm -hmm. largely, where it, it's more about viewpoint diversity. Uh, free speech uh, is an issue that I think is important, not so much because I want to be able to say fuck on the BBC before nine o'clock. It's because I think it's important that people with different political views that represent a significant portion of the population are able to express their views on our public channels, on our radio stations, in our newspapers, on YouTube, etc. And we've seen, of course, during the pandemic, the fact that uh, very you know, credible theories, like, for example, the idea that COVID may have come from a lab in Wuhan, that was banned from being talked about on all the big tech platforms. And later we discovered that actually it's a very credible theory and we are now allowed to discuss it again. We see it now, for example, with Jordan Peterson and uh, Dave Rubin being banned from Twitter for uh, using Elliot Page's former name. So you're essentially no longer allowed to cite the biographical facts about another person's biography and history uh, on, a, on a public platform. Uh, we saw it with the suppression of the Hunter Biden story during the 2020 election in the United States, where 
days before that vote was due, a story was published about the son of President Biden, now President Biden, uh, which would have had a huge impact on how people voted because it alleged some very serious corruption and other misbehavior by by his son. Uh, and that was shut down as quote unquote Russian disinformation. Now we know it was almost entirely legitimate, that story. So what we're seeing is, and what I'm concerned about when it comes to freedom of speech is not people being able to swear at the time that I think they should be able to swear at, but rather suppressing the sharing information, which is valuable or could be valuable and preventing people from expressing political viewpoints, which are widely shared in society, but are not widely shared in the halls of the BBC and our other elite institutions. Do you think then, I mean, you, you, you mentioned certain um, types of information that, you know, as you, as you say, have been shared and perhaps suppressed and then uh, allowed to be shared again. Do you think that there should be certain checks, though, on the way that information is disseminated? Because, of course, there will be certain instances in which people will make things up and present it as true, um, which obviously, you know, you don't want people to be misinformed as such, do you? No, I don't want be people to be misinformed, which is why I'd like people to get informed. And that means seeking as much information as possible from different sources, reading up and engaging with different ideas and then finding out for themselves what they believe. Uh, you have a right to misinform yourself if that's what you choose to do. You're a free citizen of this country. You have the right to access information that you choose to access. You have the right to have a different opinion to me. That is your fundamental right as a human being. And if I've got the reins of power in my hands and I say, well, actually, this is the truth. Well, I actually don't think that I should be allowed to enforce that on you and prevent you from having information that contradicts what I think. And I'm afraid we are moving very quickly in that direction. Um, of course, there are things that we would, we would agree upon, for example, scientific facts. But even those, we've seen a subject to manipulation in a panicky time like the last two years when we've got a, a new pandemic. We don't quite know what's going on. And the government jumps on things and starts to shut things down just in case. That bothers me. It bothers me because both my parents are scientists. They're both biochemical engineers. My father was involved in developing vaccines and working on viruses in the Soviet Union. And the first thing that they taught me is science is a process of inquiry and uh, thesis and challenge and discussion and debate and contradictory points of view. And you cannot have this dogmatic one-size-fits-all approach to doing science or to doing public discourse about science. You've got to allow people to express themselves. And that will mean that some people are misinformed or uninformed. But I think that's a lot better than one entity having the entire control over what is accurate information. I don't think that's the society we want to live in. Mm -hmm. I'd just like to take it back um, for, uh, to the book for a moment, because there's something that you mentioned in the book, which I find particularly interesting in um, relation to the suggestion that some people have that the 2016 presidential election was influenced by Russia, and mm. the same with Brexit. And of, of course, that was something that was um, demonstrated to have not been the case in, 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 in a major um, way in a, in a way that would have influenced either vote substantially. Do you think that the way that that was spread, though, in a way inadvertently helped the Russian political machine because it gave a sense that Russia was perhaps more powerful in terms of its influence than it actually is and actually was? Yeah, and this is where it's useful to think about what Russia actually wants. It's not necessarily the case that Russia wants specific politicians elected over others. Uh, what Russia wants is to divide 
uh, and uh, create an unstable situation where people don't know what to believe. Uh, Yuri Bezmenov, the KGB, KGB defector who I mentioned in the book, he talked about the fact that that's what the Soviet Union wanted. And its efforts in the West, generally speaking, were not so much espionage in the traditional sense of, as he talks about, blowing up bridges. What they wanted to do is create an environment in which you never really knew what was true and you were constantly questioning and you were usually afraid and things were going on that you felt you didn't quite understand uh, and there were foreign powers involved and you didn't know who was telling the truth and you'd be deeply suspicious of the political system itself rather than of an individual candidate. And I'm afraid that is the position that we've ended up in. So I think the the more we buy into these conspiracy theories, whether they are you know, blue or non or QAnon, whichever one of those you, you, you follow, the more we give ammunition to our enemies abroad uh, who want to see us divided, who want to see us living in a permanent state of discord, who want to see us arguing what a woman is instead of looking at how do we defend ourselves in a world where we have genuine uh, foreign threats. Um, and so that's why I wrote the book, because I, I think it's really important that we wake up and stop wasting time on these issues and encouraging our enemies uh, to become emboldened. Um, we're coming towards the end of the podcast, Constantine. It's been excellent to have you on. And I have one final question for you. Now, I briefly mentioned uh, at the start of the podcast, we've not really discussed it, that you're the co-host of Trigonometry. So uh, my final question to you is this, and I, I suspect the answer is in the book, having read it. If you could have any guest on, alive or dead, uh, someone from the past, to suddenly appear and be interviewed by yourself and Francis on trigonometry, who would you pick? I couldn't pick one, but I'll pick two. Uh, these are two of my great heroes in the comedy sense, uh, Bill Hicks and George Carlin. And the reason is that the, I was inspired to go into comedy uh, by those two, two men. And one of the reasons I was inspired by them is I felt that they were pushing back. They were doing what comedians are supposed to do, in my opinion, which is push back against the dominant religious ideology of their time. And they were very critical of the religious right in America at the time, because that was one of the driving forces behind the censorious and uh, sort of restrictive climate in, the, in that time. And I see myself in a very small way, of course, continuing their work by pushing back against the dominant religious ideology of our time, which is this sort of runaway progressivism, uh, which has become a cult, which now has priests and you know the, the faithful and punishments and inquisitions and, and all of that. Um, so those are the two people I'd love to speak with, because, of course, as you know, George Carlin, a massive lefty, mm. uh, one of his favorite quotes of mine is uh, political correctness is fascism pretending to be manners. And I would love for the current progressive woke comedians who constantly have a go at me because I think freedom of speech is important to sit down and watch an interview with George Carlin or Bill Hicks talking about restrictions on comedy and political correctness. I would love to see that. Well, I think that there'll be two fascinating guests, as you say, um, two great comedians, uh, sadly, uh, very nice. Thank you once again for coming on the podcast, Constantine. Uh, if anyone wants to find out more about you or wants to purchase a copy of the book, where should they go to do both of those things? The book is available on Amazon. You can also pre-order it uh, at the moment. Actually, you can order a pre-order uh, pre a signed copy and somehow a signed copy is cheaper than the full normal version. So my signature <laughs> devalues the book. So if you'd like it cheaper, you can pre-order it signed from uh, it's a pinned tweet 
on my Twitter. It's from Prim, the Primrose Bookshop, uh, or just get it online. You can. It's available as an audiobook. It's available as a Kindle and available in hardback as well. Uh, yeah, and uh, if you want to find me online, I'm at Constantine Kissin on all the social media. Excellent. Thank you once again for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam, and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Debated Podcast, like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast, or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one.